All right, Genesis chapter 1, if you've got your Bible. We're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit this morning as we begin our new series called Flow. And... Um, not tied to progressive insurance. I mean, we tried hard to get some corporate sponsorship from Flow of Progressive, but they, they opted out. But we are going to talk about the movement of God um, from the beginning of time and, and draw ourselves into that cadence, that rhythm of God and, and, and really the bigger story of what he's doing. And, and so as I sat down this week and I began um, to think again about this, first question in my mind is I'm thinking about y'all and I'm thinking about um, what I could say to y'all. The first kind of thing that came to my mind is, does God exist? Right? Does God exist? Um, I think that's a very real question that some of you probably wrestle with and a lot of people wrestle with today, um, that question. Now, I'll tell you why I'm going to jump over that question today. I know that's a big one for you guys that are struggling with that to jump over, um, but we're going to have another series coming up on, on that later on. But I jump over that because that's an issue I've wrestled with before, but I, it's settled, right? I mean, for me, for me, I have a friendship with God. Uh, I know God is real. I talk with him. I interact with God. Um, he is, I see him at work in my world, in my family, uh, in this church, and I simply can't deny um, what I see and what I experience. So, so I'm going to go to what I think for believers is a far more interesting question because they've settled the first one for themselves. Um, this question is, what is God's will? All right? I think you kind of, you kind of will wrestle with that for the rest of your life as you walk with the Lord, what, Lord, is your will? And as we talk about that question, I, I confess to you all that normally when I think about what is God's will, I think about what is God's will for me, right? I think about what is God's will for me. Do you want me to do this or do that? Um, do you want me to believe this or believe that? Do you want me in Dallas or Amarillo? Boy, Lord, I hope it's Dallas, you know, because who wants to go to Amarillo? But sorry, we, have, we actually have some Amarillo folks. So. It, it's all right there. It's all right. If, if, if you're smell impaired, you can have a great life in Amarillo, Texas. If your olfactory, you know, system is not working properly, you can do well. But God, what is your will for me? That's normally what I think, right? Or um, I think in congregational settings, we tend to think, what is your will for us? And by that, we often go to our set of issues, you know, our concerns and, and questions and, and points and, and struggles that we have. Um, what is your will about, you know, the Lord's Supper? Should we take it every week? Should we, should we take it once a month? Uh, what is your will about music? How should we do music in our church? Um, what is your will about women's roles or men's roles? What is your will about the Holy Spirit? Um, and once again, I don't think those are bad questions. I think a lot of those are, are very legitimate questions for us as a church family to wrestle with. However, I think there are deeper concerns that when we move into those, when we address those, when we care most deeply about those, the other things tend to work themselves out a lot more nicely, a lot in a lot more healthy way when those larger questions are settled or we understand them at, at least. And so that's what flow is about. What is God's bigger story? Before I jump into my, you know, whether or not I should take the promotion, uh, whether or not I should do this or that, whether or not we should do, you know, what is his story? What is his 
cadence? What is the flow of God throughout history? And so we begin in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the first couple of verses. And let's, let's remember this. As we, talk, we think of Genesis as, right, the beginning, okay? The beginning. It's not really the beginning. It is, um, uh, you can put air quotes around beginning there. It's, it's, it's our beginning. It, it's, it's the universe's beginning. It, it, but we kind of show up rather late on the stage. God has been around for trillions of years. Um, he has no beginning. So when we begin in Genesis, it's, it's, it's our beginning, all right? God's just getting um, warmed up as he moves in Genesis chapter 1. The beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So I think of the first two verses of the Bible. I think of them, if you'll allow me, I think of them as an artist, God, and a canvas, right? An artist, God, and a canvas. Canvas because the words used in the very beginning of the creation of the physical universe are formless, void, um, an earth covered in deep waters. This is latent. I mean, this is full of potential, but the artist is preparing to paint. This is what I see in Genesis. Now, let's face it. Genesis, especially the first chapter, is controversial. I mean, there are a lot of controversial chapters in the Bible. This is probably the most nowadays. Genesis chapter 1. How did God do it? What, what were the physics behind the creation? And I'm not sure that this is really a recipe in Genesis 1. I'm not really sure this is like a how-to guide to universe creation. And I know believers who take God's Word seriously, who love the Lord very much, who believe... That God, in Genesis chapter 1, created the world in six literal 24-hour days, and then on the seventh day, rested for exactly 24 hours. I know believers um, who I love and who I fellowship with that believe that. I know believers who cherish God's Word, who honor God's Word, um, who love the Lord, who worship the Lord, who think it was more like 14.5 billion years, and that Genesis chapter 1 is Hebrew poetry, and, and, and they, they believe that God made the world, but He did it a little bit differently. Let me say this. Wherever you're at on that, I believe the point of Genesis 1, or the key point, the main point, the big point is God made this place, right? God made this place. And as you move through Genesis 1 even, you begin to see the big story. You begin to sense the flow of God at work even in the beginning, right? Because you see God making man and making woman in his image. You see this spark of God himself placed in us. You see the flow from disorder and chaos, deep waters and formlessness. You see the flow from chaos to life-sustaining 
order. You see darkness in the beginning and a, a world flooded with light at the end of the Genesis account. And you see uh, loneliness in the beginning. There's Adam all alone. You see relationship as God fulfills his creation plans. There is fellowship, fellowship between us, fellowship between people and God. And you discover very quickly that God is up to something very beautiful with respect to us. In Genesis 1 verse 28, it's three important words. If you're going to understand the Bible at all, three important words. Genesis 1 28, God blessed them. Talking about Adam, talking about Eve, God blessed them. God has been interested from our beginning with having us walk under the cover of his blessing, having us walk in fellowship with him, and having us carry his image into the world. That's God's story. Begins in Genesis and pretty much runs throughout Scripture. But then you may say, I remember something that happens right after that, and and that's where this story um, gets interrupted, gets detoured. Um, the flow is still there. But the story changes somewhat as Adam and Eve decide to sin, decide to rebel against God, decide that they know better than, than God. And so there is this detour. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have this description of, of these curses that happen in the world um, as a result of, of our sin, as a result of, of us essentially blocking God's flow, at least with our choices and in our sphere of influence, blocking God's flow. Um, and so there is this, this pain, frustration, competition, depression that come into the world after people sin. God tells Cain in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, he says, Cain, watch out, because sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door. Be vigilant. I want you to enjoy my blessing. I want you to, to enjoy fellowship with me. I, I, I want you to bear my image in the world. Be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Now, here's a story. You may have heard some of this before. The Chicago Fire, the Great Fire, and I'm not talking about an MLS soccer team. And if you know who the Chicago Fire are in the MLS, you are really a soccer geek. But there was a fire in 1871 in Chicago, October, and it destroyed much of the city. Many people lost their lives, and we could talk about that. But, but an interesting thing I want to talk about is, is how the fire started, all right? What we know historically is the fire did not start in the city of Chicago. In fact, the fire started on the other side of the Chicago River, all right? the other side of the Chicago River. So the question, quite naturally, that, that people struggled to answer for a while was exactly how did the fire jump over this river? 
You don't have to think about that too long to figure out what happened, at least if you know much about the Chicago River of that time. It was nasty. It was a nasty cesspool of sewage, right? All of the, the human sewage went into the river. Um, they had the, the Union stockyards in Chicago, and all of that waste was thrown into the river from the animals. Um, uh, dead things were thrown in the river. It was basically a clogged-up cesspool of stuff. And in fact, the Chicago River was quite combustible. So the fire just kind of walked across the river, so to speak, and ended up doing great damage because of, of, that, of that blockage that the river experienced. Well, let's think about that for a second. Let's think about that for a second. The fall of Adam and Eve and pretty much the rest of, of the history of the Bible um, pretty much the rest of the history of, of the world, what goes on on the evening news, um, deals with the consequences of this blockage that we have created in God's flow that we see in Genesis 1, that we've basically blocked that up. And so the rest of the Bible talks about those consequences uh, of sin. Think about relationship for a second. Amazing blessing that God gives us to be able to, to know each other, to be able to share time with each other, to be able to enjoy each other, communicate with each other. Relationship. Um, there are different kinds of relationship. There's, there's friendship and there's you know, even marriage, kind of the highest level of, of human connection. Um, it's a beautiful thing that what God made. Then sin gets in and gunks things up. There's selfishness, there's ambition, there's fighting for my interests, there's jealousy, there's cold indifference. And so, for example, you know, two people fall in love, they get married, eyes are wide with hope and expectation and Reckless, beautiful vows in front of witnesses. They are going to love each other till death do they part. Because of sin, jealousy come in, comes in, betrayal comes in, selfishness comes in, impatience comes in, and all of a sudden, what was created to be such a blessing relationship begins to feel more like a curse. Go to divorce court. You'll see what I mean. What about sexuality? Sexuality. God came up with that, by the way. It's not dirty. Not a bad thing. God invented it, right? Sex was his idea. So there's this gift, this, this sexuality that God creates and God gifts his people. It is among many things, among the pleasurable things and, and the, the offspring and everything that come through it. There is this bond that develops or should develop between two people. But when it's blocked, when God's blessing is blocked, when sin enters the equation, there is this pollution that stagnates this gift. Pollution of pornography, promiscuity, abuse, incest. Um, the blessing of sexual intimacy 
for many people feels more like a curse than a blessing. How about work? <laughs> work is a good thing. God, as, as, as the opening scene of the Bible, the curtain opens up, we see God at work. Work is blessed because God works. Six days he's working. Whether, whatever you think about those days, God is working. He blesses it. He creates. He designs. He puts that paint on that canvas. It is blessed. But when sin comes in, it gets off. And from this gift of work and creativity and building, early on we find slavery. And even today we have things like work infected by drudgery and futility. And we have something good that became blocked by sinfulness, and now there are actually workaholics, right? Who will sacrifice their family, who will sacrifice relationships, who will sacrifice their fellowship with the Lord Himself by working too much. And so these gifts, you see how each gift can become um, polluted by our sinfulness. And we see this in Scripture, God's will, God's flow, God's movement, God's cadence is from darkness to light. It is from order, or it is from anarchy to order and rhythm. It is from loneliness to fellowship. But when, when you look at the world you live in, when you think about the world that you have experienced since the day you were born, it feels more like light is leading to darkness. And order is, is leading to confusion and anarchy. It feels more like blessing is leading to curse. It feels more like fellowship is, is steering more toward loneliness. Author Adolfo Quezada sums up the blockage issue by saying, I love this quote. He says, the more you try to grasp the less you have. The more control you surrender to God, the more under control your life becomes. Back to Chicago. So this, this fire essentially wipes out a good portion of the city, and, and something had to be done. We can't let this happen again. And so the city fathers and the engineers got together, and they planned a massive civil works project, bigger than the 635 deal going out here, okay? I mean, they planned this massive civil works project to build these 28-mile-long canals that would, would connect this river, this highly polluted, stagnated, sewage-filled river, to connect it with the waters of the Great Lakes. And they pulled it off. And in the year 1900, finally a sluice gate was opened at Lake Michigan, and this pure water flowed into the Chicago River. Fish and life 
and freshness in that river. In fact, the, the project was so important that the American Society of Civil Engineers actually called it one of the projects of the millennium. Right? Think for a second. What would happen if this blockage in God's flow, what, what would happen if it were removed? What would happen if in relationship and ministry and work and sexuality, what would happen if that blockage was blown out, washed away? What would things look like? I think they might look a little bit like what Jesus described in John chapter 14, verse 15, when Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, you may be like me, and you've heard this saying of Jesus taught in a very different way than, than what we're talking about this morning. You've heard it said, if you don't obey Jesus, you're in trouble. You better get everything just right, and then Jesus will love you, which is essentially changing things around, really reversing the flow of what Jesus said. It becomes about me. You see, that's the other thing. When religion is blocked up, when sin enters into religion, religion becomes about me. It becomes about what I do. If there is any flow here, it is me making it happen. And Jesus comes along and says, no. It's not if you obey me, then you love me. It's if you love me, then out of that affection and adoration and gratitude. If you love me, the obedience will flow. The concern for the commands of God, for the will of God, that will flow, but it has to flow out of love. What about church? What about the family of God? What if the flow of God's blessing was unblocked in our life together? Darkness would be flooded with light. Chaos yield to, to a spirit-moved order. Loneliness would break loose and give way to fellowship. And here's what... If you want to make it specific, if you want to talk about you and I want to talk about me, here's a place we can get specific. Um, I think this is the truth we need to own up to on this. Since the Garden of Eden, what jams up the stream of the Spirit is, is our sinfulness. It's my sinfulness, it's your sinfulness. And so now we're ready to get specific. Specifically, um, what has clogged up the flow of God's Spirit in my life and in my world is my sinfulness. So on the cross, 
That's what makes sense of what happened on the cross, isn't it? On the cross, Jesus sacrificed himself to reopen the flow of God's love and God's blessing as he always intended for us to enjoy. And wow, did he ever reopen it. I mean, your sin doesn't stand a chance put up against the flow of God's love and God's forgiveness that come through the cross. This word grace that we see in the New Testament, the kadis of God, the grace of God, it's his gift to us. The creator, it's God once again taking the initiative. It's God once again getting involved in his creation and once again restoring blessing and fellowship and light and goodness in our lives. Grace does not mean that you are entirely passive. Grace does not mean that you do absolutely nothing. Grace is rather getting caught up in what God has done for you and what God is doing for you. That's what grace is. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, puts it like this. He says, grace is God acting in our lives to do things we can't do on our own. Grace, he says, is not opposed to effort. Rather, grace is opposed to earning. And so we begin this conversation about the movement of God, the flow of God, the rhythm, the cadence of God. And so let's just talk about a couple of quick, key introductory things about removing this blockage between you and your God. The first thing that Scripture talks about is you need to be hungry. You need to be famished for what you are missing. This angst, this sense that things aren't right in the world. This is not the way the world is supposed to be on a, on a global scale and on a very local scale. There, there should be a hunger in you. And this hunger will drive you to God. It will drive you to say, I'm not going to let anything get in the way between me and the love of God. Right? Jesus, when he opens up his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 6, you've heard these verses before, or this verse before, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Now, the fancy theological word here is is repentance. Let me, let me talk about this for a second. Repentance basically says this hunger, this sense... Things are not right, and it's not just because of those people out there or that TV show or that Hollywood crowd or this or that. The other Things aren't right because I'm not right, okay? Um, it's a sadness over the way my sinfulness has blocked God's work in my world. And repentance says, God, you're right, and I'm hungry for that fellowship. 
And I don't want to miss out anymore on that blessing. You made us, and in the beginning of your word, you said you blessed us. I don't want to miss out on your blessing. Repentance says, God, I am sad. I'm brokenhearted over the contribution I have made to this blockage. God, please, Spirit, please break this loose and help me move to you instead of away from you. The other thing I want to talk about is grace, accepting God's grace. I mean, there's probably, not probably, there is nothing more important, not even close, that we're going to talk about in this series about the flow of you being in the confluence of the Spirit. There's nothing more important than you accepting God's grace because there is nothing else. There is nothing else that can clean things out, that can restore you to the flow of God's movement in the world, nothing else but the blood of Jesus, nothing. You cannot restore your relationship to God. You cannot do it. You cannot earn his favor. You cannot manufacture God's favor in your life. You can accept the gift, the kadis, the grace of God. You can do that. And so this morning, maybe that first step or, or the next step on your journey is just to believe. I mean, how can I choose to believe, Gordon? I just don't believe. Well, I think for some people it is recognizing, look, I've essentially been leaning into my doubts. I've essentially been giving ear to all of my questions and all of my cynicism, and God... I see that you're at work in the world. I sense your flow in the world because I know things aren't right. I know this isn't the way things are supposed to be. And I see you calling me into a different reality, into your reality. So God, I believe. And maybe that's the step you need to take. Or maybe what you need to do is is unite your life to Jesus in faith. And part of that in the Bible, pretty cool part of that, part of that is being able to to experience Christian baptism, which you are literally immersed in water. And the idea is that you are being thrown into the flow of God, into his redemption, into his mercy, into what he's doing. Your life becomes his project and not your project. And so maybe that's the step you need to take. Or maybe this, this morning you are a believer. You believe. You love God. You want to obey His commandments. But there are attitudes or habits. Um, There are repetitive choices that you're making that you know are blocking the Spirit's work that are keeping you from being immersed in Christ I'm not talking about baptism. I'm talking about being, being immersed in the work of Christ in the kingdom. And maybe what you need to do is put those things out there. Find a mature Christian friend. Confess those things. Be as specific as you can. And just together seek God's forgiveness and the Spirit's help in transforming you so that you no longer block what God is trying to do in your life.